With the latest agriculture news from across the state and nation, it's time for the AgNet News Hour from AgNet West. Here's your host, Sabrina Halbertson. Good morning, and thank you for joining us today on the AgNet News Hour. Coming up later, keeping winged water primrose from spreading in California rice fields. And it's a slow leadership transition for the Pistachio Research Board. But our top story today, earlier this week, a federal judge with the U.S. District Court of Arizona revoked the approval to use dicamba herbicide products for soybeans. C.J. Miller joins us now with reaction to that decision. I suspect we are going to be encouraging all of the agriculture community, not just the soybean sector, but certainly uh, the entire ag community to band together here because this is a process we cannot allow to stand. And that's Chuck Connor, president and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. The ruling by a U.S. District Court judge says that the EPA violated the public input requirement from the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act before giving its approval for the use of dicamba herbicides. Well, this is a significant ruling, and it's uh, part of a, a more fundamental problem we have had in the last decade where the courts have had just too much to say about the regulatory process of the government of the United States. And whether it's EPA or FDA or whatever the case has been, the courts have really sort of taken over from where the experts are. Connor says the timing of the judge's decision is most problematic. I am just uh, returning from a trip to Alabama with some ag retailers down in that region. And of course, planting season is upon them. And they, you know, are literally ready to roll out the door using dicamba product that has uh, been in their warehouses. The timing of this could not be worse uh, for them in addition to the cost of that inventory and the fact that now farmers may well have to find something else to use. And it's not clear at all what that product will be and what the cost of it will be. He adds that there will likely be a stay of the decision during the appeals process which would still allow for the use of dicamba herbicides. That's what we're going to be encouraging. I know there is already a letter circulating among members of Congress to the Environmental Protection Agency encouraging uh, the agency itself to seek that stay, which, uh, you know, would have far more credibility uh, if that were the case. So this fight is not over. Those products impacted by the judge's decision are Extendamax by Bayer, Ingenia by BASF, and Tavium by Syngenta. I'm C.J. Miller. You can also hear C.J.'s full interview later in this show. USDA's first farm income forecast for 2024 shows a significant drop in farm sector profits. Gary Crawford has more. For the sector, farm production expenses are forecast to increase almost 4% or almost $17 billion in 2024 relative to 2023. Uh, Livestock and poultry purchases and labor expenses are expected to see the largest increases in 2024, Um, but also spending on feed, fertilizer, and pesticides is expected to increase in 2024 after declining in 2023. USDA's first forecast for 2024 farm income says in general farmers are going to see their profits down from last year by a big amount, 24%. There are numerous reasons or numerous factors contributing to the forecast decline in farm income. USDA economist Carrie Lichowski gave us a few of those factors. Cash receipts, both for crops and animal and animal products, are forecast to decline in 2024. Government payments that go to farm operations are expected to decline as well. And production expenses are forecast to increase, which would pull down net income. 
USDA projects those production expenses to rise by almost 4 percent, while cash receipts drop by 4. The reason for that reduction in cash receipts lower prices for the commodities that farmers produce. Even so, Litowski says the financial health of the farm sector is expected to remain strong. Farm asset values growing faster than farm debt. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The last U.S. drought monitor for January reflects less drought due to significant precipitation during the month. Rod Bain reports. January was a wet month. In most areas, heavy rains or blizzard snows depending upon your location in the nation. The precipitation accumulations of last month are reflected in the last U.S. Drought Monitor report for January. We see drought coverage now having dropped below one quarter of the country to 23.5 percent. That is down nine and a half percentage points from January 2nd when drought coverage was just shy of 33 percent. That also is down from a recent peak of slightly more than 40 percent of the country in drought as recently as early October of 2023. And that 23.5 percent of the country in drought, that is the lowest U.S. drought coverage since early June of 2023. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says similar trends are noted for extreme and exceptional drought, D3 and D4 coverage during the same time period, reaching their lowest levels since last June. What does this mean for drought coverage areas and potential impacts to commodities such as winter wheat, hay, and cattle? Rippy starts with the winter wheat crop. We have seen roughly a halving of the drought coverage in our winter wheat production areas during the month of January. Last month, we saw almost one-third or 32% of the winter wheat production area in drought. That has now dropped to 17%. That's also down from almost half the crop, 49%, being in drought during the planting season in October of 2023. It's also significantly lower than what we saw a year ago when 58% of the winter wheat production area was in drought at the end of January 2023. As for the other commodities reported upon with the U.S. drought monitor this time of year, with the hay, we saw a January drop from 33% in drought at the beginning of the month to 18% by January 30th. And that's also down from an autumn peak of 42% of the U.S. hay production area in drought. And for cattle, we saw a drop from 35% in drought at the beginning of January to just 18% by January 30th. That too, down from a autumn peak of 47% of the U.S. cattle inventory in drought back in October. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Ag agriculture in Washington, D.C. You are listening to the AgNet NewsHour. In today's National Spotlight, millions of rural Americans use a subsidy program to afford high-speed internet, but that may soon end without funding. David Geiger has this report. A rural internet subsidy program could be phasing out. Senior advisor to the president, Tom Perez, says back in October, the Biden administration requested $6 billion to extend funding for the Affordable Connectivity Program. The subsidy helps reduce high-speed internet plans by $30-75 a month. If Congress does not take action, Perez says it will not have enough funding to continue helping the nearly 23 million households using it. To give you some perspective, more households participate in the Affordable Connectivity Program at this point than participate in the SNAP program. Both are essential parts of our social safety net and must continue to be essential parts of our social safety net. The Federal Communications Commission says the subsidy will sunset in a few months without funding. As part of that, Paloma Perez with the FCC says as of this week, 
the Affordable Connectivity Program will no longer accept new enrollments. We are in the middle of an outreach effort to make sure that all households are aware of the potential loss of benefit, and many providers are already being required to send out their initial notice to consumers who may be impacted. Paloma Perez says affordable, reliable internet is critical for rural Americans. It's how they get education, health care, and of course, use precision agriculture. Millions and millions of households across the country, that bipartisan infrastructure law created this program, our largest ever effort to make broadband affordable nationwide, but now we are on the brink of letting that success potentially slip away. Disconnecting millions of families from their jobs, schools, markets, and information is not the solution, and we've come too far to turn back now. Tom Perez says the Biden administration wants to provide access to affordable high-speed internet to all Americans by the end of the decade, pushing for $90 billion in the Investing in America agenda. For President Biden, internet is like water. It's an essential public necessity that should be affordable and accessible to everyone. I'm David Geiger reporting. USDA is keeping tabs on how shipping constraints in the Red Sea are affecting grain shipments. Gary Crawford reports. The problems in the Red Sea are, of course, in some cases causing some changes in how wheat and other grains are being shipped around the world, if they're being shipped at all. Where ships might have you know, previously gone through the Suez Canal, now they have many more being diverted all the way below South Africa and around. And USDA Outlook Chairman Mark Chekanowski says to the extent that grain shipments may be rerouted or canceled altogether. You know, that can have implications for, you know, overall grain trade and potentially even shift some business to the U.S. when it could make U.S. supplies more competitive to certain global markets just um, based on, you know, logistical advantages. Mark says USDA analysts are keeping close tabs on the situation as they prepare their new round of world ag supply and demand forecasts, which will be released this Thursday noon Eastern Time. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. That's today's National Spotlight. Now here's today's Livestock Report with John Harris. With one month still to be reported, U.S. pork exports to Mexico have already set an annual record for 2023. U.S. pork loin is an emerging star in the market, and with support from USDA and the National Pork Board, the U.S. Meat Export Federation conducted a host of promotions in Mexico showcasing the loin. Lorenzo Elizalde, USMEF's Director of Marketing and Trade in Mexico, recently detailed these activities for pork industry leaders. The U.S. pork truck has made a tremendous contribution to promote pork loin. This year we have conducted around 150 samplings and tasting activities, and over 50 activities involve uh, recipes using pork loin. These activities have been conducted in 25 cities with 18 commercial partners. At the beginning of this year, we implemented the pork loin quality sample program with a commercial partner located in Monterrey, Sedicarnes. Pork loin was distributed among the customers of Sedicarnes. And also, we used the pork truck to conduct tasting demonstrations with all the customers of uh, Sedicarnes that participated in the workshop. New consumer products developed in Mexico include smoked pork loin and a chopped loin product used in tacos. New product development has been very important. We believe that if we want to increase demand for pork loin, we need to develop new products. This year we developed two new products, chuleta ahumada, which is smoked loin, and also chuleta taquera. This is a chopped loin that is used for tacos. These products have been very successful. They are being sold at Walmart and also at City Club. 
We promoted these new products through grill workshops, and also we used the port truck to conduct tasting demonstrations. For more, please visit usmef.org. For the U.S. Meat Export Federation, I'm John Harris. This is the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have today's This Land of Hours report, but first, more of the day's agriculture news. And with today's AgNet West headlines, here's AgNet West Farm News Director Brian German. Stephen Vasquez is in the process of assuming the duties of Executive Director of the Administrative Committee for Pistachios. Succeeding longtime director Bob Klein, Vasquez said it has been a smooth transition process so far. We're going to be meeting with the board and the researchers and go over the current proposals that have been submitted. So I'll be a part of that process and understanding how that process works. After that, we'll get the funding in place for those researchers who did get funded. And then I'll be spending some time going around with Bob to a lot of the different processors and growers and just getting introduced to them and again, immersing myself in the industry and better understanding what the needs are. That'll give me an idea of what the next probably six to nine months looks like. Um, the nice thing is, is that Bob's leaving in April, but he's going to be accessible to me, you know, throughout the next, you know, 12 to 15 months. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's released the 2022 Pesticide Data Program Annual Summary. The report indicates that over 99% of the nearly 11,000 food samples that were tested from 23 commodities including fruits, vegetables, dairy, nuts, and grains had pesticide residues below benchmark levels established by the Environmental Protection Agency. USDA collaborates with EPA to identify and test various domestic and imported foods annually. The data underscores farmers' compliance with pesticide regulations. The report emphasizes the safety of fruits and vegetables, with over 99% of samples exhibiting residues well below EPA standards. The Alliance for Food and Farming plans to disseminate the positive results to support consumer confidence in produce safety and promote accurate information about the accessibility and affordability of fresh produce. A bipartisan bill aiming to enhance the scientific credibility of environmental protection agency assessments has been introduced in the U.S. Senate. The Sound Science for Farmers Act responds to concerns raised on the EPA's proposed changes to its chemical risk evaluation framework, which could impact agriculture. The bill mandates the EPA to share assessments with other agencies for a 90-day review and comply with executive order and docketing requirements. It emphasizes full transparent peer reviews for assessments affecting agriculture, assessing scientific quality, transparency, and real-world exposure. The proposed legislation addresses worries about potential nationwide bans or impractical workplace standards that could disrupt farming operations. Supporters of the legislation include the American Farm Bureau Federation, the Fertilizer Institute, and the Agricultural Retailers Association. Rice growers are advised to be on the lookout for winged primrose willow. Rice Farm Advisor Whitney Brim DeForest described what kind of issue the weed can be. We really just want people to be on the lookout, especially if it's spread further south. We really want to get on the ball if that has happened. So I want people to be, you know, just paying attention. And it's got very tiny seeds, and so it's really easy to move it around on equipment and things like that. So if people do have it, we want to be careful about spreading it. And it is managed by a couple of our herbicides. The best one is Grandstand. So some of our rice herbicides do work on it. But if it's in the middle of a field or like an irrigation canal where it's a little bit hard to spray, then roguing also works. But you have to make sure you get the whole plant 
out of the ground because it can re-sprout from the roots and re-sprout from the plant parts. So it's a little bit of a tricky one to manage, unfortunately. The 2024 North American Biochar Conference is coming up next week in Sacramento. Presented by the U.S. Biochar Initiative, the conference is being held at the Safe Credit Union Convention Center in Sacramento, February 12th through 14th. The conference serves as an opportunity to learn about the stable high-carbon soil amendment biochar, which shows great potential in improving soil health, mitigating climate change, and protecting food supplies. The theme for this year is Climate Action with Biochar for Economic and Ecosystem Resilience. The conference will provide an opportunity to connect with executives, practitioners, finance teams, local governments, and organizations leading biochar innovation and learn about practical solutions to challenges in biochar application, carbon removal, and sustainable agriculture. Registration information for the conference and a full agenda is available at biocharconference.com. I'm Brian German for Agnet West Radio Network. Welcome back. Wings are on the menu for the big game this weekend. That's coming up on this end of ours. With the second biggest eating day of the year after Thanksgiving upon us, there's no hotter time for chicken wings. According to the National Chicken Council's 2024 Wing Report, Americans will devour 1.45 billion wings while watching Kansas City and San Francisco battle for the championship trophy. That's enough wings for every man, woman, and child in the United States to eat four wings each. If you ate 50 wings every day, it would take you 79,452 years to eat all 1.45 billion. It's enough to put 693 wings on every seat in all 30 NFL stadiums. And if laid end-to-end, they would stretch a third of the way to the moon. That's a lot of wings, but still this year's projection is flat compared to 2023, with USDA reporting chicken production levels are slightly down from last year and wing stocks and cold storage down 13% compared to the year prior. Staying on the Super Bowl Sunday theme, one food safety expert says the food safety practices of many of us on Super Bowl Sunday might need further review. Gary Crawford has more. Yes, it's hard to believe, but it is Super Bowl time once again. And this year, it's estimated over 43 million U.S. homes will be hosting Super Bowl parties with those special football foods. Chicken wings and some nachos, oh, chips yeah. and salsa, all of those good foods. That's Meredith Carruthers with the Agriculture Department's Meat and Poultry Hotline, the number of which is on her jersey printed there. And we'll give you that number in a minute. Of course, Super Bowl parties can range in size from three or four people to a hundred or more. But Meredith says... Food safety steps are going to apply no matter how large or small your gathering is. The only thing that might differ are, you know, the quantities of food. But not the food poisoning problems that could happen if those foods are not prepared and handled properly. And now come the expected bad football puns. Uh, Right, Meredith? Yeah, we've we've had our our, our fun share of football puns (laughs) in the years we've been doing a Super Bowl campaign. So in the kitchen, if you are the quarterback... If you're cooking chicken wings or any other kind of chicken, you want to make sure your chicken is cooked to a safe and internal temperature of 165 degrees Fahrenheit as measured by that food thermometer. And if you don't, then of course, the penalty flag is down. Meredith says if you don't get that chicken up to 165 degrees, any bacteria in it or on it could survive and multiply. And she says you need to get that poultry to 165, any poultry. Ground beef, 160 degrees. Steaks, roast chops, 140 with a three-minute rest time. But undercooking's not the biggest infraction on Super Bowl Sunday, is it? So I'd say the biggest mistake is definitely leaving foods out for way too long. Now, as they play, the football players have a constant eye on the clock. And, of course, at the end of each half... Go right after two-minute warning. 
But Meredith says in food safety, it's the two-hour warning. If you leave perishable items, wings, salsas, slices of meat for sandwiches, if you leave them at room temperature longer than two hours, bacteria inside or on them from the air, from people's hands, can multiply very quickly. And the usual Super Bowl gathering, of course, is not two hours. It's three to four hours long. You've got the pregame, first half, halftime show with... Usher, and the second half, and then the post game. So during the Super Bowl... Paying attention to the timing that food is out is super important. She says we need to keep hot foods hot, cold foods cold some way or other, or at least replace foods that have been out at room temperature before the two-hour warning. And that way... There is no foul. No flags on the play. Let me add one more rule. If you insist on wearing that team football helmet to the party, take it off when you're actually eating. It's very hard to eat with that thing on. Very messy, too. It is kind of difficult to do that. <laughs> Yes, if you have food safety questions other than that, call the Meat and Poultry Hotline. Here's the number, 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. And guess what? As far as this segment, it's over. It's over. Enjoy the game, though. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. I'm going to blow this one dead. Dead? I resent that. The Agriculture Department's premier Outlook event reaches a 100th anniversary milestone in 2024, a mix of both traditional offerings and programs with some changes. Rod Bain previews this year's USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum in this edition of Agriculture USA. It is an event a century in the making. The 100th Annual Ag Outlook Forum. It's scheduled for February 15th and 16th. USDA World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekodowski is among those organizing this year's event. Traditional offerings such as the outlooks for the farm economy, trade and commodities, and the Secretary of Agriculture's keynote address are mixed in with changes to the two-day itinerary. I'm Rod Bain. Coming up... A preview of the 2024 USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum in this edition of Agriculture USA. It's the final days of registration for the Agriculture Department's annual Agricultural Outlook Forum. This year's event takes on a greater significance and celebratory nature as USDA has been holding this event for 100 years so we're going to continue to look toward the future and continue to think about all of the challenges and opportunities for the agriculture sector going forward. Which World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Mark Jekodowski says fits in with the theme of the Centennial Forum, cultivating the future. What notable change compared to prior years, the dates for the 2024 edition. February 15th and 16th. That is one week earlier than traditionally we've held the forum. It always used to be the week of President's Day, the Thursday and Friday. This year it's going to be the week before President's Day. Also, for those registering to participate in this year's event. Just like last year, all of the events are going to be both in-person and live-streamed. Several familiar elements remain within the itinerary for the 100th Ag Outlook Forum. In particular, the Thursday morning kickoff sessions. We're pleased to have the Secretary of Agriculture speak. He'll give his keynote address following the Agricultural Outlook address by our Chief Economist Seth Meyer. The Secretary's speech will focus on what's come to be known as the whiteboard speech, where he's talking about the future of agriculture and some of the programs and policies that he's promoting to help farms prosper. The Thursday mid-morning plenary session features three distinct panel discussions. We will have a 
panel discussion with some state commissioners of agriculture, learning some of the challenges that their producers are facing and some of the actions that those state commissioners are taking on the ground to promote and support the agriculture sector. We'll have another panel discussion focused on new horizons in agriculture, how science and technology is helping the farm sector to prosper. And then we're going to wrap up Thursday morning with a discussion with Raj Shah, president of the Rockefeller Foundation. The two-day forum, as always, is sprinkled with various breakout sessions, including outlooks for various crops and commodities, food prices, farm income, and this year, two sessions focused on the 2022 Census of Agriculture, scheduled for release later in the week. The forum has evolved over time. It's also expanded to include perspectives from all across USDA. So we'll have sessions on climate change and on agricultural research that USDA is supporting and food nutrition programs. So it really does cover the entire spectrum of what USDA does. Thursday evening includes a dinner speaker. Dr. Wendy Winterstein, president of Iowa State University. Talking about a land-grant system, investments USDA makes in promoting and supporting agricultural research and education through the land-grant system, how that has helped agriculture to prosper. Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack returns Friday morning to moderate the panel discussion fostering diverse opportunities for U.S. ag exports in the global marketplace. The panel includes Secretary of State Antony Blinken. The U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Catherine Tai is going to be on that panel, along with the U.S. Ambassador to the Philippines and the U.S. Ambassador to Vietnam. Registration for and program details on the 100th USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum are available at www.usda.gov slash OCE slash ag dash outlook dash forum. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. And I will be reporting from that USDA Agricultural Outlook Forum next week. This is the AgNet News Hour. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and we will be back in just a moment with more agriculture news. Welcome back to the AgNet News Hour. For today's featured interview, we go back to our top story the judge's ruling against dicamba in Arizona. Here's CJ Miller with Chuck Connor, president and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Earlier this week, a federal judge with the U.S. District Court of Arizona has revoked the approval to use dicamba herbicide products for soybeans. Joining us here today is Chuck Connor, president and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. He's also served as USDA secretary and deputy secretary during President George W. Bush's administration. First of all, Chuck, wanted to get your overall thoughts on this federal judge's decision to immediately revoke the approval that the EPA had given to farmers and ag retailers to use dicamba herbicide this growing season on their soybeans. Chuck, what's your take on this judge's decision? Well, this is a significant ruling, and it's uh, part of a, a more fundamental problem we have had in the last decade where the courts have had just too much to say about the regulatory process uh, of the government of the United States. And whether it's EPA or FDA or whatever the case has been, um, you know, the, the, the courts have really sort of taken over from where the experts are. EPA put forward guidelines for the use of dicamba. Those were generally pretty broadly supported uh, in terms of the use of that product. And now they've been thrown out. And it's, it's again, a significant ruling. It's going to impact 
uh, soybean production in a you know a substantial way here, really going into you know the, the beginning of the planting season when inventories are in full stock, um, the consequences here are substantial. And Chuck, you touch upon that because the timing of this decision is most problematic and is going to be very challenging for farmers and ag retailers, not just here in Indiana, but across the U.S. That's exactly right. I am just uh, returning from a trip uh, to Alabama with uh, some ag retailers down in that region. And of course, planting season is upon them and they are, you know, are literally ready to roll out the door using uh, dicamba product that has uh, been in their warehouses. Um, the tying them timing of this could not be worse uh, for them in addition to the the cost of that inventory and the fact that now uh, farmers may well have to find something else to use and it's not clear at all what that product will be and what the cost of it will be. My guest is Chuck Connor, president and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives here on Hoosier Ag Today. And Chuck, I would imagine that uh, these crop protection companies that are involved, Bayer, BASF, uh, Syngenta would all seek or would likely request a stay of the decision uh, during an appeal in order to allow farmers and ag retailers and cooperatives to all still have the ability to use dicamba herbicides this growing season. I certainly think that'll be the case, and that's what we're going to be encouraging. I I, I I know there is already a, a letter circulating among mem- members of Congress to the Environmental Protection Agency, encouraging uh, the agency itself uh, to seek that stay, which uh, you know would have uh, far more credibility uh, if that were the case. So this fight is not over. Um, this is again, this is a significant ruling, and I don't want to downplay it. But there's uh, more work to be done, uh, longer term, but in particular the short term here, where you know we've got uh, literally hundreds of millions of dollars of inventory that was ready to go into place and be used almost immediately. Um, Whenever these kinds of things happen, certainly the the question becomes, well, what do we do with this product when it's been canceled? And the answer is always use it, you know, according to the label. And that's the safest uh, way to get rid of these inventories. And so, you know, we're going to be dealing with that whole circumstance as well shorter term, but longer term EPA has to take action here. And that's what we're going to be encouraging. Well, and this uh, U.S. District Court judge in Arizona saying the EPA didn't follow through with its due diligence in terms of the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act and not seeking public input, uh, the proper amount, I guess, of, of public input before giving its approval. And so certainly you have this judge who has just this one individual who is quite literally wreaking havoc on farms, ag retailers, and cooperatives across the entire country, Chuck. Well, that's right, and I haven't had a chance to study the opinion carefully, but apparently this judge, you know, not only criticized the process, but had to editorialize and and talk about, you know, what a horrible product dicamba is. And, you know, that's, again, that is not the role for a judge uh, in this circumstance. Um, We just, you know, we really need to, to get EPA to push for another look at this so that this can get in the hands of uh, um, people who are perhaps a little less biased. And, Chuck, before I let you go, I understand no doubt you'll be having a number of conversations with uh, cooperatives and members of the NCFC that are very much impacted by this judge's decision. Yes, 
and uh, I, I suspect we are going to be encouraging all of the agriculture community, not just the soybean sector, but certainly uh, uh, the entire ag community to band together here because, the, you know, this, this is a process we cannot allow to stand. You know, we need our agricultural chemicals in order to provide the food and fiber for America today. And, you know, we, we have to have a better process in place where the agency itself is in charge of making these kinds of determinations. The courts certainly have a role, but they're not there as the regulator, as they appear to be acting in this case today. Once again, Chuck Connor, president and CEO of the National Council of Farmer Cooperatives. Chuck, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here today. Thank you so much. It was good to be with you. Thank you, CJ. You are listening to the Agnet News Hour. Now for more news. As much of a third of farm country does not have good enough cell connection to use some of the latest technology. David Geiger has this report. As farming moves into the future, connectivity becomes a more pressing issue to use the latest precision technology. John Deere is working on that and partnering with SpaceX to add Starlink terminals on farm equipment. Mike Cool, Senior Product Manager for Connected Fleets at John Deere, says the deal is ready to roll out later this year and can reach the third of rural Americans unable to get a good enough connection. This LEO offering, right, Starlink has a LEO constellation. It's a low Earth orbit constellation that provides higher bandwidth, lower latency to unlock all the tech that they need on their machines today and in the future. So we're very, very excited about this partnership. Um, and, and again, we're looking to roll this out in the latter part of 2024 with them. Because of a lack of proper cellular service, the RM modem 4G LTE connection most of the technology uses is not enough to let farmers get the services Deer equipment usually provides. Cool says they aim to help by getting compatible terminals to the market on a need-by-need basis. Starlink will be providing a terminal, right? We'll be providing the bracketry unnecessary peripherals to power uh, those up on the machine. We estimate that 30% of cropland in the U.S. is just not covered to the level of connectivity that our machines and customers need to operate them to the fullest uh, capability with the tech stack that they have on them. Cool says the terminal will connect to the tractor it's installed on and it's intended to work on older models. Any machine that has a 4G LTE style modem theoretically could be outfitted with this with this offering, right? And we're working through cap compatibility as it relates to mounting and the like. The partnership is to help rural farmers dealing with connectivity issues. Cool says farmers not interested will see no changes to deer equipment. This will be a aftermarket type kit uh, from the beginning rollout where a customer can go to their dealer, purchase it, uh, help with installation of deer their will on that machine. Um, and ultimately, it will just connect that machine. There are no commitments now, but Cool says theoretically, farmers may use their Deer tractor and Starlink terminal to also connect devices. That is one of the use cases that we've seen, um, where obviously, if you don't have cell connectivity for your machine in rural America, or rural Brazil, um, there's an opportunity to connect devices to that as well. Um, again, we'll be smart with that. Um, but we're not going to close any gaps at this point, but more to come on that. Ultimately, Cool says they are excited about the partnership and its potential with connectivity. We feel confident that this solution will help those in rural, rural America or rural Brazil right, to close that connectivity gap uh, once and for all. Again, John Deere and SpaceX partnering to add Starlink terminals at the end of 2024. I'm David Geiger reporting. How have present western water reservoir levels and snowpack accumulations this winter factored into what might be the water supply outlook for farmers and irrigators later this year? Rod Bain reports. For farmers and irrigators, it's a good news, kind of sort of depending where what is that good news, scenario at this point in the western water supply accumulation season. 
the good news first, according to USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey. From last winter's wet season, we still see reservoirs in reasonably good shape across much of the western U.S. If you look at the 11 western states, nine of them have statewide reservoir storage in January that is above normal for this time of year. With New Mexico and Washington State as of January's end, the exception to that. And when it comes to California, where mountain snowpack runoff serves as its primary H2O source. The reservoir situation is good. In January, we see storage at 117% of average for this time of year, almost two-thirds of capacity. And compare that to one year ago when we saw storage at just 77% of average and 42% of capacity. Much of this a result of last winter's above-normal precipitation particularly the multiple atmospheric rivers that flowed over California and the Intermountain West. Rippey is quick to point out that for the reservoirs of the Colorado River system, there is still the issue of chronic generational drought to deal with. So even though we have seen some recovery in the Colorado River Basin, we still see, as of January, the storage just at 59% of average and 37% of capacity. The mixed bag of news, however, stems from this winter's western mountain snowpack accumulation, or lack thereof, depending on the locale. We have seen several atmospheric river events that have punched inland, especially from Oregon to the Central Rockies, kind of taking an east-southeastward track across the west. Those areas are doing quite well, both in terms of season-to-date precipitation and snowpack. Some of our best areas include southeastern Oregon, southern Idaho, and northern Nevada, and then stretching into the Wasatch Range of Utah. Yet below normal snowpack levels are found in a stretch from the Sierra Nevada and Arizona Arizona and the Northern Rockies with emphasis on western Montana. So for those east-facing rivers like the Missouri that depend on runoff from the eastern slopes of the Northern Rockies, that could be a concern as we head into the spring and summer of 2024. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. That's today's top agriculture news. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thank you for sharing your morning with us. To get more information on the topics you heard today, visit Agnet West online at agnetwest.com. You can also stay connected by following us on our social media at agnetwest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find our broadcast team of Brian German and Sabrina Halvertson on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to the Agnet News Hour from Agnet West. Agnet West Radio Network, your primary choice for agriculture news.